turn to your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, the passage of Scripture that Brenda read for us just a few moments ago, Daniel chapter 1. During the past five years, it has been my uh, joy to preach uh, the gospel according to Genesis and the gospel according to Exodus. And uh, you have journeyed with me as I have preached from these two Old Testament books. This morning, we begin a new series from the book of Daniel entitled, Living the Gospel in an Antagonistic Age. Now, to begin this morning, we need to understand, first of all, the historical background to Daniel. After God used Moses to deliver his people from Egypt and bring them to the borders of the Promised Land, he then used Joshua to lead Israel in capturing that land. If we can go to the first slide, please. After the land was theirs, Israel was governed, first of all, by judges. And then later in their history, they were finally ruled by kings. All the kings that had come from the lineage of David. Now, under their two greatest kings, David and his son Solomon, Israel then extended its borders and grew into a great, great power. But there lay within Israel a cancer. For they had given themselves over to the worship of other gods and idols, contrary to what Yahweh, the Lord, the true and living God had said. You shall have no other gods before me. This cancer was in their hearts since the time of the Exodus, since, since living in Egypt for so long, worshiping the gods of Egypt. Now during the time of the kings who came after Solomon, this, this cancer destroyed the life of, of the nation. And the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings record what happened. In the 10th century before Christ, 1,000 years before Jesus, the people of Israel were divided. They were divided into two separate kingdoms. The smaller of the two became the southern kingdom of Judah. The remaining 10 tribes became the kingdom or the northern kingdom of, of, is, of Israel. And both the southern and the northern kingdom had sinned greatly by disregarding God's law, engaging in idolatry, and turning a deaf ear to God's prophets. 300 years later, in the year 722 BC, the king of Assyria arrayed his armies against the northern kingdom of Israel and he conquered them. Now keep this in mind, whenever the Assyrians defeated a nation, they then scattered the conquered citizenry among other nations that were under their control. In essence, the Assyrians had their own residential school system designed to eradicate a people's nationhood and culture and assimilate them into the larger body politic. They believed that taking the survivors captive into foreign lands would obliterate their identity as a nation and prevent them from rising up and fighting for their independence. This is how Assyria dealt with Israel. And after defeating Israel, they dispersed the people throughout their empire and thus the phrase, which you all heard before, the lost tribes of Israel. They were lost. Now the southern kingdom of Judah now was all on its own, so to speak. And it continued on under the ominous and threatening shadow of Assyria until a new empire arose in Babylon. Now this Babylon was a superpower. And after it destroyed the Assyrians, it now set its sight on the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now this brings us to the Babylonian invasion of Judah. The nation of Judah was driving at this point at full speed further and further into idolatry and corruption, passing all of the warning lights along the way that God himself had put in place. It was headed for the same disaster that had already befallen her sister Israel. The prophet Jeremiah lived during this period of time, and in the 22nd chapter of his prophecy, he gave a direct warning to Judah. He told them precisely what would happen to them if they did not heed the call of the Lord, that Judah would be destroyed. And he also told them why, and we see this here in Jeremiah 22, verse 9, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. 
Judah didn't listen. They didn't listen to their prophet. And this brings us to the opening line of Daniel chapter 1. It brings us precisely to the year 605 B.C., which, according to verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, the people of Judah had rejected Jeremiah and his message. They believed mistakenly that their fate would not be like Israel's. Jerusalem, we know, was built on a high hill, and it was, they thought, an an impenetrable fortress. So from all over Judah, from the countryside of Judah, the people abandoned their lands, and they retreated into their holy city. But after two years of the city being besieged, it finally fell. Judah was defeated. Judah was subjugated. And in the violent battle, all of Judah's villages were destroyed, their homes were burned, and the survivors were taken into captivity in Babylon. Now, even more devastating than any personal loss that the Jews might have sensed at this time was the actual invasion and destruction of the Temple of Solomon, the sanctuary of Yahweh, the one true and living God. Babylonian soldiers entered the temple. They defiled it by stripping it and and setting fire to the most holy place, the Holy of Holies itself, where the Ark of the Covenant once rested. And many of the priests were slain. And Daniel tells us, look at verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure, put in the treasure house of his God. Judah was shamed. Judah was violated. Jehoiakim, the the king of Judah, did not heed the warnings of the prophets, and he led his people further and further into idolatry, and he became a vassal, puppet king, over a greatly diminished nation under the Babylonian heel. And then the deportations to Babylon began. Many of the remaining citizens, particularly those who were strong enough to be productive slaves, were rounded up, organized for the long march. None of them would ever see their homeland again or worship in their holy city. And among them were four young teenagers. They're named in verse 6, Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Four teenage friends who came from the aristocracy of Judah. And they were judged by the Babylonians to be suitable material, to be trained to serve in King Nebuchadnezzar's administration. The Babylonians, like the Assyrians before them, were committed to a brutal, brutal pattern of nation destruction culture eradication, and people assimilation. And like indigenous children taken to residential schools, Daniel and his three friends were taken from their families, from their nation, and they were transported to a strange, a strange land, an unfamiliar place. They had to cope not only with the emotional trauma of forcible removal from their parents, but also with the sheer strangeness of their new surroundings, new language, new custom, new political system, new laws, a new education system, new beliefs. It's not hard to understand how traumatic and overwhelming this must have been for them. And this brings us now to the third thing I want you to consider, and that is the Babylonian Empire. Now, all of the severe trauma and pain that Daniel and his young friends experienced were unable to prevent them from reacting with open-mouthed wonder at their first glimpse of Babylon. Babylon was a spectacular city in a completely different category from anything these young men from Judah had ever seen or imagined. It was, at that time, the largest city in the world. And comparing this vast 
metropolis of Bab- Babylon along the eastern bank of the Euphrates River, Jerusalem, where they had come from, seemed like nothing more than a small backwater village. Nebuchadnezzar made Babylon unique among the ancient cities of the world. When the Greek historian Herodotus saw this city many years later in the year 450 B.C., he said that it surpassed in splendor any city in the known world. There were eight massive fortified gates, and they were set into the invincible-looking broad walls that surrounded the city. The Ishtar Gate stood out among them all. It was named after Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, love, and war. She was the high mother goddess of the Babylonian pantheon. Two two things would have struck Daniel and his friends as they entered the heart of this pagan empire. The first was just the the sheer elegance of the, the architecture and the advanced state to which learning had been developed. Many of its vast temples had substantial libraries, and there were centers devoted to the study of law, astronomy, astrology, architecture, engineering, medicine, and the arts. The second thing that would have dumbfounded them was the fact that idolatry permeated the whole society to an almost unbelievable degree. There were gods all over the place. All of the eight main gates were named after these gods, and there were temples galore, over 1,000 at that time. Entering Babylon at this time was like being immersed today into the vast Hindu enclaves of India. I have a friend sitting over here who I have known for very long. His name is Yahya. I just got to meet him. I understand that Yahya is the Arabic word or name for John. Great name. And I met this friend just a few weeks ago, and he was born in Iraq in Babylon. So if you want to know what a Babylonian looks like, there he is right there. (laughs) This brings us to the battle before us. Daniel only gives one line about Judah being besieged in the first, the first verse, first and second verses. Just a line. He gives no description of the battle. He doesn't tell us about the battle at all. Daniel could have mentioned many other things in the opening words of his letter, of his, of his, of his book, but he doesn't. And I'm sure there were things that you and I would like to read about, but he omits them all. There's nothing about his childhood in Judah. There's nothing about the, the sorry political intrigue and turmoil in the years leading up to his deportation. We have to read First and Second Kings to find out about that. But what he does tell us in these two short verses is actually documented in more detail for us in the ancient Babylonian chron- chron- chronicles, which are stone tablets that exist to this day. And they confirm that Daniel is telling us actual history. Friends, this was not the figment of the imagination of a young teenager. This actually happened. But as I said, Daniel gives us no description, no details about his historical battle. Why? Because that's not his purpose in writing this book that you and I read today. Daniel had a major concern, a purpose in writing, and his concern was to write about the real battle that he and his friends would soon be immersed into. The whole of the prophecy of Daniel is actually about this battle. You see, for Daniel and his friends, the greatest battle was about to begin. And in many ways, it is the same battle that we all face today. Within days of being deported, they were thrown into a culture that ridiculed their faith and oppressed their worship, and soon their captors would mock them and demand that they be entertained by seeing the Jews sing to them the songs of Zion. And the corporate grief and the oppression of God's people during this time is captured in Psalm 137, where the writer says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept as we remembered Zion. There our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? They were now the people of God in exile. 
Over the course of the last 18 months, I have taken much time to think and reflect about the days that we are living in. And I'm not just referring to COVID days, I'm referring to the age in which we live. I don't profess to be a person with prophetic insight, but there is within me a growing conviction that in the last 40 to 50 years, basically this, the span of my whole life, we've been living in a turning point in history, in the history of our nation, in the history of the Western world for sure. A seismic shift has occurred, and we're living in the tremors and the earth-shaking, shifting dynamics of a new emerging era. What we are facing as Christians living in Canada in the year 2021 is not unlike the times and the environment that Daniel lived in when he was transported against his will to live the rest of his life in a foreign land. Now, this story of Daniel and his three friends has a powerful message for us today. In spite of the unimaginable pressure to conform to pagan Babylon and abandon their distinctiveness as the holy people of God, they maintained a high-profile public witness surrounded by people antagonistic to their beliefs. Today, the strong currents of pluralism and secularism, relativism reinforced by a paralyzing political correct correctness and a sexually amoral activism have successfully pushed the expression and practice of faith to the margins, confining it to the private sphere. And now there are indicators of political and social forces at work to go a step further and to purge Christian belief and Christian lifestyle and Christian distinctiveness from our society. This is the battle before us. The ancient battle between Judah and Babylon, the battle that Daniel found himself in while in captivity, is a picture for us of the, of the spiritual battle that has raged since the beginning of time. In both the Old and New Tes Testaments, Babylon and Jerusalem are identified as the, as the earthly representations of this epic struggle between the forces of righteousness and, and unrighteousness. St. Augustine wrote about this fa fact living in North Africa 400 years before Christ, at, a time, at the time when the Roman Empire collapsed, he wrote his book, The City of God, and he, he, he talked about this truth. He said the world is composed of just two cities, no more, just two cities. The city of God and the city of the world. And in his book, he sees Babylon as the, the embodiment of the earthly, worldly city, and Jerusalem as the embodiment of the city of God. These two cities represent opposing ways of relating to God and, and all of life. Babylon represents humanity in, in the lowest state, separated from God and alienated from his original purpose. The word Babylon comes from the word Babel, or we would sometimes say Babel, but it's actually Babel. It's found, it's first found in the Bible in Genesis 11 at the Tower of, of Babel. This tower was built as a, as a symbol of human unity apart from God. Human unity in defiance against God. But the word Babel, Babylon means to confuse, to disintegrate, to fragment, to disunite. The Tower of Babel was torn down, but the spirit, the spirit of Babel, the spirit of Babylon has never been torn down. It has infiltrated many aspects of the contemporary world, including contemporary Christianity through false teaching and immoral living. The spirit of Babylon is everywhere in the Western world. The, the spirit of Babylon dominates human life today. This idea is, is one of the dominant themes in the book of Revelation. In the latter chapters of the Revelation, the Apostle John describes Babylon as the great whore, the great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her adulteries. Babylonian philosophy and thinking pervades every facet of society today from 24 Sussex Drive to Garth Street, 1605. It's everywhere. The first thing I want you to see in Daniel chapter 1 is that going into captivity in Babylon was God's work. God's work. Now Daniel and his friends must have been tempted at this point in time to see what was happening to them as the work of an evil pagan king from a far off land. But notice what Daniel stresses, 
in the second verse, he stresses that this was God's work, that God was in control. Verse 2, and the Lord, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting that it's here, only, only here in chapter 1 of this book, that, that, that God is actually referred to directly. In the rest of the book, his actions are implied or inferred, but he's never mentioned. Sort of like the book of Esther, where you see God on every page, but God is never mentioned. Only here in chapter 1 does God act in a direct way. Daniel understood the sovereignty of God. And this is a major focus of his writing in his book. In Daniel, we see that God is sovereign over human affairs and human governments, that God is sovereign over the world. The first part of Daniel is, is, is the historical part. And in that, he, he writes or records for us six stories, six specific true stories of how God was sovereign in Daniel's experience and in the experience of his three friends. And the second part of his book is prophecy, and there are four apocalyptic visions where Daniel sees the triumph of the kingdom of God over all of the kingdoms of the world. And in the history part of the book and in the prophecy part of the book, the absolute sovereignty of God is proclaimed. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's another reminder to us that God is sovereign. COVID did not take God by surprise. God has sent COVID for his own good and sovereign reasons. Tomorrow's federal election result is ultimately not going to be determined by you and me, by the voting citizens of this nation, even though we should vote. Whether Justin Trudeau remains as prime minister or loses the election is completely determined by God Almighty. God raises up and God brings down. Boy, I thought there should have been an amen there. Daniel, in spite of what happened to him, was optimistic and that he saw Nebuchadnezzar in every thought, plan, and decree that Nebuchadnezzar had, that God was closely, in, that he was closely and tightly under the control of God. Going into captivity in Babylon was part of God's work. And there were two things that were part of God's sovereign reasons. And the first is that God used this 70-year captivity period to purge his people from idol idolatry, this takes us back to the verse we read in Jeremiah chapter 22. Now we need to taste the divine irony of all of this here. The reason Judah fell and was besieged and the people taken into captivity was because they had served other gods and worshipped idols. And what instrument did God use to punish his people to purge their idolatrous hearts? He used the most idolatrous nation on earth. You see, the, the, the punishment of Judah fitted the crimes they had committed. The people had compromised with immorality, injustice, idolatry, and so it was taken into captivity by the most immoral, unjust, and idolatrous nation on earth. And friends, as we get into this book, and as we move into chapter 2 and chapter 3, what is the nature of the battle that Daniel and his friends encounter on an almost daily basis? It was all about idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar setting himself up with a great idol to be worshipped. And for 70 years in God's sovereignty, God had taken his people into the heart of the most idolatrous kingdom on earth in order to purge his people from this grievous sin. It's interesting when you get to the Gospels and you read about the ministry of Jesus and you know on many occasions Jesus confronted the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders with their sins. He pointed out how they had violated the commandments of the living God but never once did he point out idolatry to them because for the most part Israel had been purged of that very sin. The second reason God took them there was for them to be a blessing to Babylon itself, to make his people a blessing. Now, Jeremiah chapter 29 records the letter that Jeremiah wrote to those who were in exile. It records the counsel that he gave them. Look at what it says on the screen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Note that, I carried. God was sovereign. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Ultimately, it was God. I carried them into Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Babylon, notice what he says, build houses, 
Settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Your daughters and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will too. Isn't that shocking? Bless Babylon. Bless the Babylonians. Pray for them. Seek the prosperity and the peace of Babylon. They destroyed Jerusalem. They took these young men into captivity. They brutalized them. But God says, bless the Babylonians. Be a blessing to them. Do you remember what God had said to Abraham when he called him out of Ur of the the Chaldees? You remember he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I make a covenant with you and, 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 and I'm going to multiply your seed. And then he added these words, in you or through you, through your seed, through the children you will produce, I will bless all nations. I will bless all nations. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, this book is about these four teenagers because in the midst of their dire and oppressive circumstances, these four young men found a way to fulfill what Jeremiah said to the exiles and what the exiles should do. Settle down, cooperate, remain faithful there, and bless the Babylonians who oppress you. God was looking after his people, preserving them so that they could fulfill their destiny in you. All the nations of the world will be blessed. So it was in the will of God that Daniel and his friends found themselves in Babylon. Daniel's book reveals their opposition to idolatry and the blessing that they were to this great nation. Going into captivity in Babylon was God's work. Secondly, Daniel reveals what Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar were attempting to do. Babylon attempted to remove God from their lives. That's what they were trying to do. Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them, key line, teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained. And then notice verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. He gave them new names. We'll come to that in just a moment. I want you to notice carefully at this point in time that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian nation, had two goals, two goals. The Babylonians had a program designed. That program was designed to disenculturate the Jews. It was designed to strip them of the elements that gave them their identity as a distinct people. The goal was to assimilate them and to make good Babylonians out of them. And this plan had two parts. This goal had two parts. The first was to eradicate their godly identity. And this is what lay behind the changing of their names. These four men had each been given God-centered names by their parents. Now today we don't think about this very much when we name our kids. We have to just kind of choose names we like or we name them after our grandfather or whatever. We, we have all kinds of reasons why we choose children's names today. But, but in the ancient world, you chose the name of a person for, a, for your child and it would always have spiritual overtones to it. We see this in the naming of John the, the baptizer. We see this in the naming of Jesus by Mary and Joseph. What did the angels say to both Mary and Joseph? You were to give him the name Jesus, why, why? Nice, nice name, sounds good. No, no, no. You will give him the name Jesus because, because he will save his people from their sins. There's significance, there's meaning, there's purpose in the name of Jesus. Names are all about identity. These four teenagers had Hebrew names that reflected something about the living God, the character of God, the nature of God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means the Lord is 
a helper. And Babylon changed their names. Nebuchadnezzar changed their names to change their identities, to to try to erase their past, to, to abort their destinies, and to convince them to accept their captivity there. Babylon, as it were, the state, the state, had now entered an area of parental authority. They were usurping the authority of the parents of these four young men. And so they were given Babylonian names. And actually, when you look at the meaning of these names from the best that we can discern, their names, names given to them are actually invocations for help from the Babylonian gods. Daniel was given the name, verse 7, Belteshazzar, which means the prince of Baal. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael was named Meshach, which means who is like Aku, another of the Babylonian gods. And Abednego means the servant of Nego, one of the other Babylonian gods. This was an attempt to eradicate their God-centered culture and godly identity. The second part of the plan was to indoctrinate with Babylonian ideology. Verse 4, Ashpenaz was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. On the surface, it looks good, nothing intently evil here, but now they were exposed to an intense program of re-education, a Babylonian education. They were being systematically indoctrinated and distanced from their Israelite heritage. Now, this education certainly allowed or involved some, some good things like law and architecture, engineering, medicine, and the arts, things that the Babylonians excelled in. And this would be similar to the education that Moses received when he was in Egypt in Pharaoh's household. But there was way more to this education than just these things. The training and wisdom of the, of the uh, Babylonians, the literature would have involved being acquainted with Babylon's gods, with all of its occult pra- practices like astrology and divination and fortune-telling and magic, knowledge that would have been forbidden in Judah. And in addition to all of this, the, the myths and the legends of Babylon, which were so woven into all of the literature that they produced, these myths and legends were taught. This was designed so that these myths and these legends, the story of the Babylonian gods and heroes, would take the place of Scripture as the source of their wisdom and worldview. The fundamental goal of the whole thing was, in one way or another, to obliterate all memory of Israel and Israel's God from the lips and minds of these young men and to instill in them a sense of total dependence on Nebuchadnezzar for all the good things in life. The goal of this re-education and initiation process was that at the end of a three-year period, they would be able to enter into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar with their previous identities obliterated, their minds reprogrammed, brainwashed sufficiently to function like good Babylonians. Now keep in mind that Daniel and his friends were just teenagers. The pressure to conform was, was overwhelming. The pressure to allow Babylon to squeeze them into its mold was powerful. And they were subjected to this teaching and influence every day for three years and for the rest of their lives. They didn't have an option. They couldn't opt out of this education plan. They couldn't skip class or, or get their parents to take them out of school and put them into a Christian school. So what did they do? Well, he, clearly in the passage we see that Daniel did two things. Now, first of all, we have to say this. They had to accept the circumstances that they were in. There there was nothing that they could do to change that. They had to accept that the Lord had taken them into captivity there. So they had to accept their circumstances as God's will for them. That's hard to do, especially as a young person with all the dreams and aspirations that you have before you for the rest of your life. They knew they had no option but to serve in the royal court to serve the Babylonian people. But, but, but there's evidence in this passage that Daniel and his friends resisted this Babylonian assimilation, and I think they did it in two specific ways. First of all, Daniel did what he could to preserve his identity. Daniel preserved his identity by resisting the total renaming program. Now, Daniel and his friends didn't refuse to answer to their Babylonian names but they did maintain their Jewish names and identities as well. 
And you find that out as you read through the, the, the following chapters in this book. You discover that every time the Babylonians refer to them, it's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But every time Daniel refers to his friends, it's, it's um, what are their names again? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They continue to use their, their, their Jewish names. Daniel did not become Belteshazzar, even though he answered to that name. Nor did Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, they, they preserved their Hebrew names among themselves as markers of who they really were. And they had to live with these dual names as a reminder that they now had dual identities, so to speak, and more fundamentally as a reminder of the nature, the true nature of their God. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar possessed the ability to change their names, but he was powerless to transform their hearts. Did you catch that? He had the ability to change their names, but he was powerless to transform their hearts. Listen to this. It's a simple truth. As long as you know, as long as you know who you are in Christ, it doesn't matter what society calls you or how much they ridicule you or whatever label they place upon you. But the preservation of their identities involved much more than this. As you read Daniel, it is clear that these four young men, they hung out together with each other. They stuck close to each other. We see that in chapter 2, chapter 3. It's very, very clear as you read the story through. They stuck close to each other. I think there's something that we can learn from them about the maintaining of our identities today in the midst of a society that wants to squeeze us into its mold. Like them, there needs to be a commitment to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles so that we can remind each other of our true home and identity. Preserving our identity on our own, singly, is very, very hard to do. Left to ourselves, the pressure of the world will inevitably crush us into its mold. But together, together we can help one another. You see, we remind one another of our true identity in Christ when we gather week by week in our homes, in life group meetings, or here in our facility to worship God. It's here that we talk of our true homeland, and we, we remind each other of the coming new creation and in our times of worship and fellowship, our, our goal isn't just to be equipped to live here in Babylon, to somehow just get by and survive, but to remind ourselves of the heavenly realities that truly define who we are. You and I come together not just to be taught practical things and how to be better husbands and wives and children and citizens and students and employers and employees. No, we come together to nurture our souls in the glories of Christ and the kingdom to which we belong. And this is done week in and week out as the signs of the kingdom are displayed in our worship times. The sign of the word being preached. Because in the word being preached, there is a, a heavenly wisdom that is proclaimed that runs counter to the wisdom of this world that surrounds us and that we are immersed in every day. And when we gather in our life groups to discuss the word that was preached and to find ways in which we can encourage each other to apply that heavenly wisdom to our own hearts and lives, that's the sign of the kingdom of God. In baptism, we, we place the sign of, of heavenly citizen, citizenship upon those who profess faith in Christ, and we remind ourselves at every baptism that our true identity is found in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And in the Lord's Supper, we, we eat, as it were, our native food, and that reminds us of the cost at which our citizenship was bought and the ultimate feast that awaits us. And all of this is to help us preserve our true identity as followers of Christ. It was by being together that these four young men remained inner strangers to the life and culture in which they were outwardly and fully involved. They found strength together, and in so doing, they never sacrificed their inner conviction that they belong body, mind, and soul to another kingdom. Daniel preserved his identity, but he also refused to be defiled. Verse 5 mentions the king's food. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Verse 8 mentions this food again. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, what actually does this mean? 
Well, some people read this and think immediately that what is being said here is that, that Daniel was determined not to disobey any of the dietary laws that were given through the prophet Moses. In Leviticus 11, Jews can eat certain food, they can't eat other kinds of food. This was, it wasn't kosher food. That's what some people would say or think. Others say that what is happening here is that the kings, the food from the king's table would have been offered in sacrifice to idols, the Babylonian gods, before it came to Daniel and his four friends. And Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks about food being sacrificed to idols. And so some say Daniel didn't want to participate in that idolatrous thing by eating this food. Uh, others would just simply say that here, here we see that the Bible teaches us that we should all be vegans. I don't, I don't think that's what's being said here at all. And I say that because when you get to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel does partake of the choice food from the king's table. Daniel and his four friends were making a statement at this point in time. You see, the real point here was dependence. They were to be supplied liberally from the king's table with an abundance of food and wine. So they would become dependent on their new master. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's plan was not just about changing identity and indoctrinating them with Babylonian ideology. It was all about getting the Jews to become dependent on Nebuchadnezzar for their very lives. Remember that the majority of the population are far more easily assimilated if they are well-fed and provided for. I mean, aren't we seeing this in the federal election where every speech of the leaders is what they can give you, what they can do for you? It's all to make you more dependent on the state. As captives, they didn't have many options. They had to outwardly accept their name change. They had to learn the language and literature. But here was one area, one area that gave to them the possibility of resisting assimilation and conformity to Babylon by resolving that they would not become dependent on the king. And by requesting that they only eat vegetables and drink water, they were making room for God to work. They were showing their dependence on God. Dependence on his rich food would have been defiling because it would have created this dependence on them, in them. And that was exactly what Israel had done in the past and have been punished for, depending on foreign powers instead of on the one true and living God. This is why you and I need to build into our lives a constant reminder of our dependence upon God for all of the good things in our lives. Friends, even a, such a simple act as, as giving thanks for our food is a powerful reminder of this, or keeping a daily record of the Lord's gift to us, the answers to prayer that we received, Remember this, that the degree to which you practice prayer reveals the depth of your dependence on God. So you know the story. Uh, Daniel went to the guard, and he tried to reason with the guard to see if he could get permission to, to not eat this food. And the guard was a little reluctant, but, but it says in verse 9 that God caused the official, this guard, to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And so the guard acquiesced to Daniel's request and gave him and the three others just, just vegetables and water to eat for a 10-day period. I think, this, I think this decision that Daniel made here, that Daniel wanted to, to inculcate into his life, was, is comparable importance to the decision that Abraham made to leave his land. It is comparable to the decision of Moses when he met God at the burning bush. And after fighting with God for a period of time, finally said, I give in, Lord, I'll do what you want. I'm convinced that if Daniel and his friends had not refused to hear, that they would not have had the fortitude to resist later. And this was just the beginning of the battle. Because what comes later? What comes later is the fiery furnace and the lion's den. But they put down their roots, they put down their feet here, and they made a stand. They drew a line in the sand, so to speak. Daniel and his friends were willing to learn the language of the Babylonians, but they refused to be nurtured by the spirit of Babylon. Now, it's easy for us to just focus on these young men and, and, and see how faithful they were to God. They are certainly examples to us. They're certainly models to us. 
They are witnesses that surround us, as it were, as it says in Hebrews, that help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, so that we can run the race with perseverance. But friends, this passage is not about Daniel and his friends. It's not. It's not the main thrust here. This passage is not about their faithfulness. Daniel chapter 1 isn't telling us what we all learned in Sunday school, dare to be a Daniel. It's not what it's telling us. This passage is not about the faithfulness of these men. This passage is about the faithfulness of God. Because in the final thing I want you to consider this morning, in Babylon, God was faithful. Verse 9, God, they found favor. God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to them. And there are three things that you see here, and I'm going to go through it very, very fast. The first thing is that God made them strong. God made them strong. They had a limited diet. As young men whose metabolism was running very, very high. And yet they came out physically stronger than those who had received the king's food. God made them strong. Secondly, God gave them knowledge. Look down at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. It wasn't just Ashpenaz who was giving them this information, but God was helping them to work through that information. And God gave them knowledge and wisdom. Verse 19 says the king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God gave them knowledge and wisdom, and then God used them to bless Babylon, and we see this in verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the kings, the king questioned them, he wanted to learn from them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. God had placed them in a unique position where they could be a blessing to their cap, 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 captors and build up the society in which they found themselves at the same time being true to the living God. This theme of faithfulness, the faithfulness of God is seen in the end in chapter 1, verse 21, where it says just one line. It's an interesting line. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know what this is referring to? This is 70 years later. The year of King Cyrus, the first year, was the year in which Cyrus issued a decree to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. The exile was over, and God was with Daniel for that whole 70-year period, proving to him over and over again how faithful he is. Now, I think there's a few things that Daniel wants us to know. I'm going to go really fast here. These are stuff that I hope that you will take. These are some things I hope you'll take into your life groups this week and discuss them in your groups. I would say the parents who are, who are here, if your kids have heard this message, you, this is the kind of stuff you can talk to your kids, your kids about. There's something I think that Daniel wants us to know from Daniel chapter 1. The first is this. It is God's will for us is where we are right now. God's will for you and me is where we are right now. I think most of us would like to just wish we could have been born in a different day and age that didn't involve a pandemic. We'd like to live in a different age where there isn't so much pressure against the things of the Lord. Listen, where you are right now is God's will for you. And we are to be like David. We are to serve the purposes of God in our own generation. Number two, God wants us to be pure where we are right now. The world is trying to squeeze you into its mold, but you can't remove yourself from where you are right now. The will of God for you in Christ Jesus is that you be pure for Christ today. Number three, God wants us to be a blessing where we are right now. This isn't just about survival. This isn't just about about building a, a monastery that we can lock ourselves away in to deflect off all the pressures that come to us from the world. No, no, no. God wants us to settle down. God wants us to bless. God wants us to pray for the city. God wants us to engage our society right now, no matter what the cost to us might be, so that we can be a blessing where we are right now. And finally, God will be faithful to us where we are right now. Please stand. 
Father in heaven, we ask for help, the help of the Holy Spirit, the companionship of our Lord Jesus, so we might live for your glory in the midst of an antagonistic age. We bless you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name. One final thought, one final thought, an important thought. It's about the word dependence. Dependence. Every single one of us here depends on someone or something. Many of you perhaps are depending on the Lord. I I think most of you are depending on the Lord for the salvation of your soul. But some of us are trusting and depending on other things. You're, You're depending on your own good works or your own efforts, your own righteousness, the goodness that you think you possess. If we get anything from Daniel chapter 1 in his dependence on God as opposed to being dependent upon Nebuchadnezzar, it is that when we put our dependence on anything else other than the Lord, it's like trusting in water to hold you up when you stand on it. It can't keep you up. You will sink. You will die. You will be lost. But when you put your dependence on Jesus because he is the pure one, and he can give you his purity if you believe in him, because he is the one who died for your sins and rose again from the dead, when you put your dependence on those historical truths of his crucifixion and resurrection for you, then you will stand tall. You will know God. You will have a foundation in your life that enables you to live like Daniel and his friends in a world that is completely antagonistic toward us. Trusting Christ brings us an ultimate salvation, the salvation of our souls. So I trust you will think of these things and depend solely on him. Now may God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sustain and strengthen you grant you his grace and his presence and fill you with hope and with power as you depend on him. Amen.